Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food and passion and making a difference in the world. And our guest today is the Reverend Eugene Cho, the new incoming president and CEO of Bread for the World, one of the most important anti-hunger organizations that we've worked with over a long time. Reverend Cho is succeeding David Beckman, who's been a great friend to share our strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. And David is retiring. And after a search, uh, the board appointed Eugene Cho. He takes office officially July 1st. And we're really feeling fortunate to get to talk to you so early in your tenure, Eugene. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's really a an honor, even during this tumultuous time, and maybe even more so to be on your show to t- talk about hunger and other important justice-related issues. Well, I want to start by having our listeners know a little bit more about you. I know that you are the founder and former senior pastor of a, of a church in Seattle, Washington, the Quest Church. You're also the founder and visionary of One Day's Wages. I want to hear a little bit more about that. But I've got to say, Eugene, one of my favorite things about you so far is your book titles. You have two books, and they, they both have great titles. The first is called Overrated, Are We More in Love with the Idea of Changing the World Than Actually Changing the World? And I guess the other one is new and just out called Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. Who comes up with the titles? Well, it's me. And, um, you know, it sounds good on paper, but the bad news about those titles is that when I look at my algorithms about how people find my blog, they usually type Eugene overrated jerk. Um, So (laughs) that's the only bad thing about having these titles. Just tell us about the new book just as we get started here. Sure. I mean, uh, you know, as you read, uh, it's my attempt to give a Christian's guide to engaging politics. And I'm typically just speaking to three audiences in the larger capital C church. I think there's a group that's disengaged politics for whatever reason. They're tired, exhausted. And sometimes I'll meet Christians who feel like it's not within our responsibility to engage politics. And then there's a group that I think are obsessed with politics, that it is the ultimate answer to all things. Now, clearly, it's very important, but I come from a a framework that believes that while politics is very important, it's not the answer to all things. And then lastly, there's a group of folks that I'm trying to engage where we understand politics to be very important because it engages policies that impact human people. And how do we do that in a way that still seeks to uh, be mindful of not dehumanizing others and vilifying others. Obviously, those are really important conversations during our world today. Really important. And I guess to uh, help us dive into them, I'd love to know more about how you came to the faith work, how you came to the political work, and then how you came to Bread for the World. Let's start with the faith work. Sure. You know, this is kind of a crazy story, but it's it's almost impossible for me to talk about my faith work without sharing a little bit about my family story. Both my parents were born in what is now called North Korea. My great-grandparents were among the first people in their small little village outside of a city called Pyongyang to begin a relationship with Jesus, for lack of a better phrase. And as most of your listeners probably will know, Pyongyang is now the capital city of North Korea. Back then, there was only one country. Obviously, a war broke out dividing these two nations. 
And so faith has been an integral part of our family story going back generations. I made a personal decision to devote my life uh, to be a follower of Christ when I was 18 years old, and I've been growing in my faith, if you will. And uh, I received my call into ministry and went into theological studies at Princeton Theological Seminary in my early 20s. And I've been a pastor for about 30 years. But as a pastor, what I've come to realize, and it shouldn't be rocket science to some of your listeners who are of religious or faith background, but it doesn't just mean that we're called to have a personal, pious relationship with God. Obviously, that matters. We're also called to genuinely love our neighbors including those who don't look like us, think like us, feel like us, worship like us. And part of that means that we should have a particular inclination towards those who are vulnerable in our communities, including those who experience hunger. So for the longest time as a a minister, it's always been part of my conviction, part of my vision, theology, leadership to pursue justice, not for the sake of justice itself, but because it matters to the heart of God. And one of those, again, issues is is just the reality that there are those who experience poverty, vulnerability, and hunger. And that's part of the reason why uh, Bread for the World has always been something that I cared about as a pastor. You know, we hosted Bread for the World, writing letters, calling our leaders, engaging Bread for some years. And so when this opportunity came up, uh, there was uh, this, this, I think, invitation to be able to dive in that much more deeper, uh, integrating my, my passion for both the church, the faith world, but also, as I shared earlier, acknowledging that policies inform, politics inform policies that impact human people. Let me take you back for a moment to Princeton Theological Seminary. It's one of the, really the great theology institutions in the country. I've, I've had the, the pleasure of visiting there on a, on a couple of, of occasions, and I've, got a, I've always had great admiration for it. I've got a kind of a naive question, but I'm, I'm gonna, I, I mean it quite sure. seriously. When, you, when, when someone goes to the seminary, what are like the range of choices before you? If you're going to med school, you could be a pediatrician, a, neuro, a neurologist, a cardiac specialist. When you go to the seminary, what are you trying to sort out and what kind of options are before you or did it almost inevitably lead you to what you're doing right now? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And the answer has dramatically changed, I think, since I matriculated in Princeton, gosh, 25 years ago or so. You know, nowadays, I would say that all of the options are open and available. Those that desire to go into clergy ministry, if you will, Oftentimes, they go to these theological institutions to receive a master's of arts in theology or a master's of divinity. But I also think that we're living in a world that's becoming a bit more flattened in terms of access. And so there are folks that are serving in particular clergy positions that don't necessarily have theological degrees. Now, I think theological education is very important. It gives us, I think, a but more of a holistic understanding. But at the same time, I can tell you that I have numerous friends, many friends, in fact, that I went to school with that are not necessarily in ministry or clergy world. I have friends that are doing, that are, that are lawyers, that are doctors, that are doing a, a variety of things. And so it's really all of the above. What was the first thing you did when you left the seminary? The first thing that I did was I eventually drove cross country to Seattle. I had never been to Seattle, but I interviewed for a position there to become a pastor. And that was, again, about, gosh, uh, 
25 or so years ago. And so that, that was the first thing that I did. I, I pastored a Korean-American ethnic second-generation church. At doing that for three years, I felt a conviction and a call to enter into the city of Seattle from the suburbs to plant, to start a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church that was kind of rooted in this theology of the whole gospel, that yes, Jesus cares about personal relationship, but that we really needed to hold the convictions about mercy, justice, and compassion, not as secondary or tertiary issues, but as core to our identities as followers of Christ. When you think about things like mercy, justice, compassion, it must be your conviction that the church is the best way to engage with those values, uh, because I think they're, you know, they're so important. They're so core to what we try to do at, at Share Our Strength, but we don't come at it from a faith-based approach. We ally with a lot of faith-based organizations, but as I hear you talk about it, I'm starting to realize that, I guess, the power of faith in terms of inculcating those values or getting people or society to engage in them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the reality is the church, we don't certainly monopolize compassion, justice. We don't monopolize those things. And so I think it's an opportunity for us to collaborate. There's kind of a Venn diagram, if you will, where we can, again, partner and collaborate with other people. But I think for those who come from a faith perspective, particularly a Christian perspective, it answers the why we do what we do. And the why is for us, it's rooted in our faith in the triune God, in the person of Jesus, guided by the Holy Spirit. And so I know that eventually, as we speak more about Bread for the World, Bread for the World partners and engages with many organizations and many partners and many politicians and many lawmakers. But we're also clear in conveying to others that we are a Christian advocacy organization. And in some ways, uh, it's a source of accountability for ourselves. It's our moral grounding that speaks to who we are, why we do what we do, and that we want to do it with integrity. And so this is kind of, I, I think of Bread for the World, which as I mentioned, we've worked with for a long time and have great admiration for. It's really got a unique niche uh, in the anti-hunger and anti-poverty space because of who your supporters are. And I think the conviction that they bring when they talk to policymakers a lot of your work is international, and I know there's some very important work that's domestic-focused as well. How have you thought about that? Will that change at all under your leadership? I guess just describe for our, our listeners a little bit uh, just the mission and priorities of Bread for the World. Sure. You know, If I step back, just again, for those that may not have heard Bread for the World or of Bread for the World, uh, you know, our simple tagline is that our vision is to end hunger, both in the United States and around the world. We believe that one of the ways that we can do that is to engage our lawmakers, our government leaders, to make more just, more compassionate laws, policies that help facilitate that. So we are a Christian advocacy organization. I think for some people, you know, they realize or they don't know enough about advocacy. You know, I, I would say that at least within the larger capital C church or Christendom, you know, we do f things like food bank well. We do our personal endeavors to help with issues of hunger. And those are all very, very important. We're stating that in addition to those things, we need to engage the important critical work of advocacy. Uh, so those things will continue. Part of my hope, my vision uh, as I uh, enter into this new leadership, 
I'm trying to convey to people that, uh, at least from my framework as a, as a leader, there's probably four or five things that I want people to think about. And I'm not a huge fan of alliteration per se, but they all begin with the letter P. It's the word pastoral. Uh, that we have to make sure that we uh, start and end with love in our minds and hearts. It's prophetic that we have a call to be prophetic, to speak truth to power. Uh, We have to give people practical solutions. And that's one of the things that we do, again, with policy work. And that we have to make sure that it's personal. We don't ever want to be leaders in this space, activists in this space that do our work behind our keyboards, but don't necessarily embody, personally embody these convictions in our own lives. And then lastly, I think as people of faith, we're often reminded that it's not just by our own strength. And so I'm constantly encouraging our staff to be tethered to our faith and to be in prayer. Again, that would be the fifth word that begins with P. So pastoral, prophetic, personal prayer, which one did I miss? And then uh, practical. Practical. Got it. Okay, okay. So I'm, I'm taking notes and make sure I get this down as well. What's your sense of, I guess the political question would be, why have we had such a challenging time creating the political will to end hunger? One of the things we constantly talk about at Share Our Strength and in the No Kid Hungry campaign with our focus on childhood hunger is that it's, a, it's an eminently solvable problem. It looks a little less solvable today in the face of 40 million Americans applying for unemployment benefits as a result of the COVID crisis and everything we're experiencing now with the with the killing of, of George Floyd. And I want to come back and talk uh, about both of those. But during less extraordinary times, what do you think the key is to kind of creating that political will? This is, and this, because this is a question that we wrestle with constantly. Well, I think you're asking... The quintessential million dollar, you're asking the question because I think all, everyone that's been in this space, they would acknowledge that it is quote unquote solvable, that we might not necessarily create a perfect flat earth and not that that's our goal, but in terms of ending hunger, both in our nation and around the world, it is solvable. And we just haven't been able to create a groundswell, this political movement. And in some ways, I think it's because we're lacking leadership. Uh, we, can, we can speak of that, and I'm not necessarily pointing the finger at one person, but I think just generally we're, we're lacking leadership. I think we're lacking collaboration. I think in some ways, in a very complex and fast-changing world, it's hard to get people And by people, I'm speaking about the general population to focus on a particular issue and then to go deep in those areas. And I think we're also just dealing with some myths that we need to debunk. And some of these myths are like, you know, again, I'm using my air quotes right now since we're we're on a Zoom talk here, but we're basically have these myths that we need to debunk, like poor people are lazy. They're the ones that are at fault. They're the ones that are responsible for these things. And so as we're dealing with policies, I think we have to do a lot of work still trying to humanize the story uh, as well as uh, kind of uh, debunking some of these erroneous stereotypes that we have. Um, So it is challenging. There is a lot of work to be done, but I would agree with you that uh, we're lacking this will to be able to end hunger and we need to create this, build this. And I would say just also look for that uh, moment, 
that will come hopefully someday when things converge and we feel like this is the time for us to coalesce coalitions, coalesce collaboration, and coalesce our, our leaders as well as the national population to get behind this. So as someone who's stepping into this very important leadership role, Eugene, what will be the the gating factors or the obstacles or the hurdles that you're going to be trying to knock down or or get over? What stands between you and 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 success here? So I, mean, I think there's a couple things. One, I mean, just specifically for Bread for the World, I often tell folks that are asking specifically about our org that we should never diminish our ability to make change. And then secondly, we should never overestimate what we can do. And it's not meant to be the soft, circuitous answer, but we are but one organization. And I say this, again, not to give us an opt-out, but a reminder that this work can never be done by one person or one organization, one church, one company. It really does require kind of an all-hands-on-deck. And in some ways, I think despite the trauma and despite the extraordinary circumstances of COVID and excessive lines of food banks, despite all of these challenges, I think what it has given us an opportunity to capture is an imagination that in spite and because of these difficult circumstances, there is a bit more of a gelling, a bit more of a coalescing that's going on. And so, you know, for me, I think it's really, we've got to keep incubating the partnerships and coalitions and collaboration that's going on. And I, I, I do think Bread for the World as an organization, we need to do a better job with our storytelling. We've got to do a better job humanizing these stories, but we need to do a better job really listening, not just to the grass top leaders, there's room and value for our grass top policy leaders, but to also listen to our grassroots voices, people on the street and on the ground particularly as we're trying to debunk some of the myths that are around it. And certainly, we need to be able to not necessarily, obviously, we don't want to vilify any of our elected leaders, but we've got to put some pressure uh, rooted in love, rooted in justice, getting this bipartisan support for policies. And, you know, Billy, you've been around the block plenty of times to know that when we're talking about policies, we desperately need to push and strive for this bipartisan support so that when administration changes happen every four years, that these policies have the legs to be able to withstand policy and administrative changes. Well, you know, there's a number of things you said that just really resonated with me, particularly around the uh, the opportunities that this moment creates for richer collaboration. You know, one of the things we've always said at Share Our Strength, really from the beginning, and I kind of learned this in politics, I'd been involved in several presidential campaigns. And remember uh, in 1984, this is really ancient history now, being involved in Senator Gary Hart's winning New Hampshire primary and thinking that was the day that, you know, he had the team he needed. That was actually just the day where he needed more because we were going from a one state campaign to a 50 state campaign. And the lesson for me was that at every junction on the road, you've got to slide down the bench and make room for more people. That There's no way you're going to do this by yourself. And we've always said it, share our strength. I remember when we started the organization and there were five of us. Well, obviously five of us aren't going to be enough to, to end hunger in this country or this world. And then as we grew today, we've got 250 of us, but 250 of us are, are not going to be enough to end hunger unless we really find ways to meaningfully work with others. And one of the things that struck me, it just kind of a lesson over the last week or so, Eugene, was I think it was last Monday morning, I emailed 
Claire Babineau Fontenot, the CEO of Feeding America. Our organizations have been collaborating and doing things together for a long time, but I emailed to say, you know, let's talk about how we could do more, and particularly in the late in the light of what had happened with George Floyd, what can our response be a united response to this kind of systemic racism? Well, a long way of saying, we got on the phone that afternoon with our two leadership teams, and we got more done in one day, stuff that you normally would have taken a month, because I think everybody has realized that the magnitude of some of these problems demands that we not worry about our own organizational imperatives, we not worry about our turf, we not worry about anything except how do we come together and get some big things done. So I, I'm really seeing exactly what you're what you're speaking about. Let's jump into both COVID and George Floyd and the, and the racial issues that we're confronting now, because uh, as you said, I've been around the block a little bit. You have too. I don't think either of us have been alive at a time like this, where so much has come together in such a catastrophic way and people are so isolated in terms of their ability to deal with it. When you think about the relationship, and one of the things I think we're trying to articulate, and maybe you'll be able to help us, when you think about the relationship between systemic racism and inequality and hunger and poverty, how do we help more, how do we help more people understand that? This is a tough question, I know. Sure. No, I mean, it's a, it's a tough question, but it's an important question. And that's the question I think we should be asking. And this is why, you know, I'm, again, incredibly moved and inspired by stories of neighbors and individuals reaching out and helping one another. We should never stop doing that. We should praise it and keep sharing those stories. I'm grateful for food banks and for churches and for companies that are doing its part. We need to go actually a little deeper and ask about the intersecting, the integrating aspects about why uh, these things even exist. And so uh, I think one of those answers is that we realize that it's not just an interpersonal affront when racist people engage one another, but there are systems and structures, institutions put in place. And that's really hard because we can't point the finger at one person. But again, it's embedded in our structures. We can talk about the Jim Crow era, obviously. We can talk about redlining. We can talk about resources that are limited to schools and establishments. We can talk about jobs. We can talk about mortgages and loans. I mean, all of those things are connected to the systemic racism that our black and brown sisters are talking about right now. And so when we're talking about issues of hunger, you know, it's not a secret that when we study issues of hunger, that those who experience hunger in our nation right now, that for black and brown people, the rates are double the rates of our national rates. There's not a surprise, even though it's really painful when we're talking about COVID-related illnesses and deaths, that the disproportionate number of deaths impacting black and brown bodies, it is directly related to issues of systemic racism. So it is really hard and really challenging. And so my advice to people is let's not A, deny racism. Let's not deny the intersectionality of how this impacts our everyday life. And then as we're talking about issues of hunger, we can't just talk about issues of compassion. Those are very important. We should affirm it. But we've got to go a little bit deeper and say, how do we engage 
you know, both personal transformation, but also structural reformation and transformation as well. Now, the latter is not easy. It's not an overnight thing. It's not a one policy thing, but certainly it's something that we have to keep working on again and again, but it's impossible to work on if we're not willing to acknowledge that it exists. And sometimes perhaps as hard as it might be to hear our complicity in some of these policies and structures. Yeah. See, and I think that's the the challenge. I mean, I think of some conversations I've had just over the last couple of days with some folks who are, I don't believe them to be racist at all. And I think they recognize racism and denounce it, but I don't think they see the connection between racism necessarily in our work. So for example, a couple of these conversations have been around, you know, this systemic racism is terrible. Something's got to be done about it, but we're an anti-hunger organization. Shouldn't we be keeping our focus there? And so to say that they're not either or, but that they're you know, intimately connected takes a, you know, I I guess just a deeper level of learning and uh, on our part, the obligation for a deeper, deeper level of teaching and educating. Yeah. I mean, that's really part of the hard conversation that we should be having. And I think every organization that's around justice workspace, including hunger, they're having that very precise conversation. I've heard many folks say, hey, let's stay in our lane. Let's just focus on these things. Now, I I get that. I know that sometimes you have to say no to good things, to say yes to the things that you feel like your cause or organization needs to do. But I think we're missing the fact that there's such a interwoven aspects of all of these things. So even if we might not necessarily dive fully into the work of, let's just say, um, racial injustice, to not engage it on an intimate level, I think, would do ourselves, do people in our own staff that are black and brown, and certainly, I think, these larger conversations, it would just do it injustice. How will you balance bread for the world's global interests with the domestic interests? And what should we understand about the degree to which hunger is similar around the world to what we experience in the United States and and the degree to which it's very different? We know uh, the balance is, yes, there is a desire to be balanced, meaning that they're both equally very important. Uh, And I think in our current uh, cultural climate and political climate, Uh, We want to push back sometimes on the phrases about America first or America only. Like for us, as people of faith, our global neighbors are our neighbors, and we're called to love our neighbors. And we can't love our neighbors if we don't know our neighbors, if we're not speaking about our neighbors, if we're not advocating for our neighbors. So I would just say it's probably the easiest question asked in this interview is that We care both about domestic issues of hunger as well as international issues of hunger. And and just for some nuances, I mean, we're concerned about the international front. Because COVID-19 has impacted every single one of us, I think much of our focus right now is on domestic issues. I don't want to take away from that. But as a result, I do think that we're somewhat missing out particularly in the larger kind of general national consciousness, it really hasn't sunk in what's happening in the larger uh, international level. Just to give a little bit of some context, you know, at the end of 2018, about 180, about 820 million people in the world were malnourished. 135 million people were facing what we call extreme hunger. 
And as a result of COVID-19, the World Food Program, they came out maybe about six weeks ago and estimated that the number of people that are going to experience acute hunger around the world, it's going to likely double by the end of this year, about 135 million people to 265 million people. So those are pretty intense, intense, real numbers that are impacting human people. And it's not just issues of hunger, right? We're talking about food systems. We're talking about health and public health systems. I was doing some research just for some context for your listeners. There are some nations, I think the last time I counted, maybe eight nations around the world that have less than 10 respirators for their entire nation. And I say this, again, not as an indictment on these nations, but we're just talking very different public health systems. Uh, Central Africa Republic, as an example, has three respirators for their entire nation. And there's a reason why some of these nations have gone in complete radical lockdowns, and it's because they're just afraid what might happen when it spreads. But as a result, people aren't able to access food. Uh, food isn't been able to be delivered to respective homes. And so the international issues are something that we really need to be mindful about. And obviously on the domestic level, I think we all understand at least on a big picture level, the impact that is impacting just our nation. But just one statistic that I'll just share, you know, right now we have 11 million children in the United States as of a year ago, pre-COVID that we're experiencing some element of food insecurity issues, people are now predicting that that might grow to about 18 million people as a result of COVID. So it's jarring. And I think it's a reminder that what you do through your organization, through No Kid Hungry, what we do at Bread for the World, even though it's at times, if I'm honest, I feel a little overwhelmed. The world has changed from March when I said yes to the invitation But I think it is a reminder that the work that we do is more important than ever before. And it's kind of an all hands on deck where uh, we've got to all recommit ourselves to this work. Well, I think that's exactly right. And one of the things that's impressed me, and I'd say one of the more encouraging moments that I've had through the last two weeks was yesterday, I have a 15-year-old son and we went to a protest rally on the George Floyd killing in the small town of Kennebunk in Maine, which is where we are right now. And there were 300 young people there who I just got the sense, I feel like I know Kennebunk, it's not a hub of social activism, but there were 300 young people there that I saw turned on to activism for the first time. And it really gave me hope that, you know, the question in our organization that we've been talking about in terms of our response to the racism and the issues around George Floyd's killing is uh, one person summed it up as, is this going to be a moment or a movement, right? Is this something that it's just going to, we're going to talk about it for a few weeks and then everybody will be back to business as usual. And there will, there will surely be some degree of that. But I really got this hopeful sense looking at all these young people who felt so, I think, imbued with this notion of justice in some cases for the first time, that this may be more than a moment, that this may be a way to galvanize uh, people to, to really create a broader base of support for some of these very fundamental changes that you've been talking about. Any sense of that at your end? Well, absolutely. This is not just, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, we, we do know that at some point things will 
subside just a little bit. But at the same time, I think we're realizing people are sensing that there is a significant moment right now, a historical moment going on right now. And I told this to my staff at Bread that I don't want to look back a year or years from now. And as we look back, we said to ourselves, man, we were, we didn't show up. We, we weren't present. We didn't raise our voices. We didn't do a serious introspective look at our own organization. We didn't challenge our colleagues and friends. We didn't call for a deeper commitment to, to issues of justice. So my, my hope is that it is a movement. And I think what we have to realize is that we don't want to be bystanders. And earlier during the interview, you know, you asked a question that I think it's still kind of on my mind. Like, why hasn't there been sufficient political will? And I think it's because the additional thing that I would add is for some of us, for many of us, uh, if we're talking about the issue of hunger, it's because it hasn't directly impacted us. Yep. That's yep. the reason why. That's the difference. And I think when we're talking about issues of racial oppression, racial injustice, is that you know, again, for the larger population, whether you're white Americans, and in my case, as, as a Korean American, while I'm a person of color and I can speak about issues of racism, you know, against me and against Asians, particularly during this COVID-19 pandemic, I think part of the reason why the issues of black and brown racism hasn't in the years past, decades past, centuries past, why it hasn't developed the groundswell is because it hasn't impacted us. And it reminds me of something that I wrote about, you know, in my first book, everyone loves, everyone loves justice until you realize there's a personal cost to you. And I think that's just food for thought for us to consider during this time. I was, you know, talking about this hope I have in the next generation. And before we started recording, you were talking about having two college uh, age kids and a high schooler. Uh, how are they processing all this? I'd really be interested to hear. I mean, this is a, I, I, I just chuckle because first of all, I'm just, I, I love my kids. I respect my kids. I'm, I admire my kids. The adjustments that they've had to make as well during this COVID season, during this time, as we're all at home, all fighting for bandwidth during our, our Zoom talks and what have you. But I can genuinely say that I have much to learn from our kids. You know, I'm learning from them. I'm learning from their pain, learning from their stories. I'm learning from their activism. I'm learning. And I think this is a time that while each of us have things to contribute, I have stories to share. I have expertise to bring to the table. But I think we have to make sure that our conversations aren't centered on our grass tops mentality, uh, but we have to also be hearing stories from on the ground, including our younger friends who are leading the way as well. And we need to partner together. This is really an all hands on deck kind of a situation. And I think the you know the younger ones are not just going to passively accept the world that we've created and are handing to them as is. I think they're I think they're ready to make some change. Eugene, for folks to learn more about you and your work, there's obviously the Bread for the World website. Also, One Day's Wages as an organization that you started. Is that website up and informative and something folks can learn from? Yeah, it's just simply onedayswages.org. And it's very different from Bread. Bread does advocacy. And what One Day's Wages does is that 
we try to inspire people around the world to donate one days of their wages, whether it's once a month, once a quarter, or once a year. And we invest 100% of that in carefully vetted projects on the ground on the international development aspect. But yeah, for those that are interested, they can certainly follow me on social media. The best way to follow me on social media, my handles on Twitter is simply at Eugene Cho. The same thing for Instagram, at Eugene Cho, and they can find me on Facebook as well. And my, my one invitation would be, you know, I so believe in the work of bread, and I would love for people to check out bread.org, whether or not they uh, come from a faith background or not. Uh, as you said, a bread for the world over the years have developed an incredibly, they're very respected, credible. And I think we have, we've, we've earned the right to be able to have a place at the table, collaborating and convening with people to move the needle on this fight against ending hunger. Well, you certainly have more than earned that right. And I'm also going to mention again, your newest book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. I'm looking forward to more storytelling on your part, Eugene. I think it's something we all need to get better at. I think it's something that you, one of the many gifts that you're going to bring to this anti-hunger movement. So it's really been a treat to talk with you. Thanks for taking the time on a, on a difficult week with uh, a lot of other competing concerns, but I'm really grateful that you were able to do this. Thank you again so much and look forward to, again, future conversations and future collaboration. Thanks. We've been talking with the Reverend Eugene Cho, the incoming president and CEO of Bread for the World, an ally of Share Our Strength and many other anti-hunger efforts, not only an ally, but Bread for the World has been a leader around the world and in the United States. Thanks so much for listening to Add Passion and Stir. You can go to our website, addpassionandstir.com and find previous episodes. You can rate us and rank us and subscribe and share this with your friends. Uh, with thanks to the entire team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign and our producer, Paul Woodall at District Productive. I'm Billy Shore. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.